How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now, let's get started. Hello there, and welcome to Life's Key 3. It is great to have you with me today, and we are going to be wrapping up the book of 1 Samuel. You know, this Old Testament book, oftentimes we focus on some of the stories centering around David, which we should, but there is so much to learn also about the life of Saul in this book as well. And there's some pretty interesting other characters we meet along the way. The life of Jonathan is in itself a profound study. You talk about being caught in the middle of a rock in a hard place. He wants to remain loyal to his father, and he does. And yet at the same time, he recognizes how totally out of his mind, basically, his father is. And this puts him in a very difficult situation because of his deep friendship and respect for David. Well, before we dive in and wrap up this book today, I want to invite you to head on over to the website, stephaniepresents.com, and check out the speaking engagements that I offer. I do speaking for Christian women's events as well as parents, and also up in the top menu, you can click on the tab that says Key 3 Educators, and that takes you to my sister's site, which is where I focus specifically on helping primarily Christian school leaders and educators. And there are speaking engagements that I offer there as well for Christian schools and also homeschooling groups. All right, let's dive in to wrap up this fascinating book of 1 Samuel. We're at the very end. There's a couple of chapters at the end. And just to bring you back up to speed, David has been living in a foreign land, and he's actually been living amongst his enemies. That's right. He's been living among the Philistines. Remember Goliath way back when? The giant that he killed, where was Goliath from? Goliath was from Gath. Where's David living along with his 600 men and their wives and children? He's living in Gath. Why is he there? I can tell you why he's not there. He's not there because he prayed and sought God, and God said, hey, I need you to go over and live in Gath for a while. That is not what happened. David had had it. He was tired. He was fatigued. He was worn out from years of being on the run from Saul. He hadn't been running from Saul for a few months or even just a couple of years. This had been going on for a very long time. Some estimates are that it was 13 years before the time that David was anointed king and when he actually became king the first time. And I say king the first time because it wasn't like as soon as Saul died that David became king over the entire nation of Israel. He only became king over some of the tribes of Israel, and there was a civil war that broke out between some of the people and sons of Saul and David, and then and that lasted for a longer period of time. And so it actually was quite a long time before David became king over the entire nation. 
You know, sometimes God gives us a promise. He gives us a calling. He gives us anointing. And it can be years before we see the fruition of that. And I understand how discouraging that that can be. But I want to encourage you to look at the life of David because nothing that he learned during this time on the run went to waste. David learned incredible military tactics and strategy. He learned negotiation. He learned how to make do with very little. I can guarantee you that with 600 men following him from place to place to place, plus wives, plus children, he had some team dynamics that he had to deal with. He had to establish authority. He had to negotiate interpersonal dynamics and relationships. He learned how to be a leader on a very small scale, and that prepared him to become a leader on a very large scale. Just because God has anointed him, however, and he is using all of these things that David is learning in order to move him into the fullness of his calling, that doesn't mean that everything that David does during this time is guided by God. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. And when we pick up with the book, with the end of the book of 1 Samuel, where we find David is not centered in the will of God. He has taken his men over to this foreign nation, the Philistine nation, and they have been given a city, Ziklag, by the king Achish. And what happens is every day they go out and they make these raids on these neighboring villages and towns, and they don't want the news of this to get back to the king of Gath. And so what they do is they just wipe everybody out. This was not wiping out people because God had called them into military battles against these people. Whenever we end up in a place where we're not where God has called us to be, and even though we're there because of unfair situations and circumstances, there's going to be some destruction that occurs. Now, it may not include, and hopefully it doesn't include, anybody's costing anybody their actual life, but it can be very costly in other areas. So one of the things as we wrap up this book of 1 Samuel is to recognize this wasn't the first time that David, out of fear and fatigue, and he's just frustrated, that he ends up putting himself and other people in positions that are very, very costly. So what happens here is Saul arrays his army, and they're going to go to battle against the Philistines. Again, they've been doing this for a lot of years up at this point. And David, thinking, well, we have to be loyal to the nation where we are living, not our home nation. What they do is they go and they are prepared to go into battle against their very own nation. And this is where God in his grace and his mercy intervenes. And he does this through the Philistine commanders of the army. The king is all about, yeah, sure, come on and battle with me. But the military men are actually going, "Uh, no, this is David. This is the man of whom we know he has killed his tens of thousands. And who were those people? Most of those people were Philistines. They're not real happy that this guy who's previously been wiping them out and their biggest, one of their biggest opponents is now supposed to be fighting with them. And they say, no, 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 this isn't going to work. What needs to happen is you're going to send him out because what better way for him to regain the favor of his nation and of his king 
than to go into battle with us and then to turn and to fight against us. So David pleads his case with the king, but the military commanders went out. They're like, there's no way that that man and his army are going to go into battle with us. And so David and his men turn around and they go back to the city of Ziklag. Well, while all this has been going on, the Amalekites, who are other enemies, come in and they capture the city of Ziklag and they take everyone back with them. Now, keep in mind, the men at this point have all gone off to war. There may have been a few men left there just for a a little bit of protection or some men that maybe were too old to fight, although Remember, these were men that had joined up with David and had been traveling around with him. So this wasn't like a regular city that would have had very young and very old people. These were people who were living here because they had come with David from the nation of Israel. And all of these people are captured and they're carried away. So we're talking about a lot of women and children. And I can guarantee you they are scared. They don't know if they're going to be killed. Are they going to be sold off as slaves? Are they going to become sex slaves? Are are they going to watch their daughters be assaulted? Are they going to watch their young boys be killed? This is a time of terror for all of the people that were part of David's entourage. When David and his men get back to the city and they realize what has happened, they're, they're actually able to find this Egyptian who had been left behind and he was very ill. From him, they learned about the Amalekite raid. So they tracked down these Amalekites that had raided their village and not only had raided the city, but had burned it to the ground. So there's nothing to go back to. And when they go to pursue and to try to get back their wives, their children, their property, God, again, in his mercy and grace, gives them success so that they're able to get back everyone and everything that had been taken. Does that mean that no harm had been done to anyone? We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Just because everyone and everything was returned, doesn't mean that everyone came back unscathed. We simply don't know. So what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, we see God's incredible grace because, again, David is not in this situation. He and his men and their wives and children, they have been living in this city now for over a year. So this wasn't like a couple of weeks where he had been living in this place. They had already taken the lives of other people through their their raids, and now their wives and children go through this terrifying experience. So God is merciful to protect them, even though David had never sought him when he left and went off to Ziklag and went off to this nation of Gath. So why was God so merciful? This is supposition on my part, because Scripture does not clearly say this is why God was merciful here. So I'm just looking at this on a matter of principle, not because I can point to a particular verse that says, this is why God showed them mercy in this situation. I think one is because David is still growing up in his maturity as a leader. He's still learning to listen and follow the voice of God. 
He's learning when he needs to be intentional about asking God for specific direction in his life as opposed to living with a general direction for his life. I don't have to get up every day and say, God, should I get dressed today? There are things that by common sense we know that we need to do. We can ask for God's provision and his protection and his, his blessing, but we don't need to pray about every single decision that we make when God has already made it very clear. Well, of course there are things. You need to brush your teeth. You don't need to pray and ask me, should I brush my teeth today? But there are other things where it's not clear what's the direction we should go. What are the choices that we should make? And so what we see here is learning by what David doesn't do. He does not seek God and pray. And there are natural consequences that come as a result of that that are very costly. Now, they could have been more costly had God's grace not been present. So we can count on and look for and ask for God's grace to protect us even when we are making mistakes and choices out of ignorance because I don't see David here acting out of deliberate rebellion. It's out of ignorance. But even ignorance can be costly. I mean, what's the old saying? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. We can take away the importance of seeking God, especially for those significant decisions that we need to make in life and that involve other people. And we can also pray and ask for God's grace to cover us when we fail to do that because none of us are going to get it right 100% of the time. Meanwhile, back at the battle between the Philistines and Saul and his army, it is not going well for Saul, and exactly what had been prophesied to him the day before comes to pass. He is killed as a result of battle. Now, there's some different interpretations about exactly what happened with Saul. Did he take his own life? Did he sort of take his own life, but then he didn't end it entirely and someone else finished him off? There's kind of some different ways of looking at that. And that's significant, but that's not what I want to focus on today. I think rather it is a matter of recognizing on one hand, Saul continues to show up for battle. That's a significant thing. You know, he doesn't make peace with the Philistines. He still recognizes them as their enemy. You know, he could have come to a point of saying, I'm so tired of fighting these guys. Let's just do a peace treaty with them. He could have backed away from his calling entirely. And even though Saul's life is such a travesty, he never fully backs away from his calling and his anointing as king, even though he misuses it. And isn't that the most frustrating kinds of things to deal with sometimes? It's when you see someone who is half in and half out. They're not totally committed. They're not totally rejected. They still have a calling and an anointing and a purpose and a mission. And they're, they show up for parts of that, but they don't show up for the whole part of that. Maybe you have experience with that, or maybe you're in the midst of experiencing that in a relationship right now whether that's with a colleague, with a supervisor, with a spouse, with a friend, they're in, but not totally in. So they're still showing up in some ways that are good, but there's other ways in which they're not showing up. Saul still kept showing up as king of his nation when it came to fighting against the Philistines and showing up and actually going to battle. 
But then what's he doing on when he's not fighting the Philistines? He's not showing up as king. He's showing up as a scared, insecure, fearful person who's going to take his army and his resources and go out and chase David, who he sees as a threat. The impact of fear in Saul's life never really leaves. We saw that in the very beginning when he was first anointed king, and then it's time for his coronation. And what do we see? He's hiding behind the baggage because he's so afraid to step into this role that God's anointed him for. And instead of dealing with that fear and insecurity over the next couple of decades that he's keen, what does he do instead? He just keeps shoving it aside and he just continues to minimize the impact of it and not deal with the harm that it's doing. He doesn't listen to the counsel of other people who are around him, including his very own loyal son. He doesn't listen to the prophet Samuel. He even gets to the point that he's not even really in touch fully with the reality that's so clear that David on at least two occasions has Saul's life literally put into his hands. David doesn't do anything to harm him. And yet Saul is still convinced that he has to take David out. How do you deal with somebody who's half in and half out? Even though David makes the mistake of moving off into the land of the Philistines, the one thing he does do right is he says, God, I am going to let you deal with Saul. When it is time for him to no longer be king and for me to step into that position that you've called me to, I will allow you to be the one who orchestrates the events that causes that to come about. Now, again, we want to keep this story in the context of all the rest of Scripture. So we don't want to just take a principle here and apply it as if it's the only principle of how we deal with these kinds of situations in all of the Bible. That's not it. This is why we need the discernment of the Holy Spirit to be able to know which principle do I need to apply in this particular relationship at this particular time? Sadly, although Saul is still acting with some level of integrity and nobility to go into battle, he doesn't die a heroic death. He actually dies a very fearful death. And when he is discovered, he and his sons um, are discovered by the Philistines and their corpses are captured. They are um, treated very, very badly. And there are some men of great integrity and courage that when they hear about how their corpses have been mutilated, they travel through the night. They put their own lives at risk to reclaim those bodies and to handle them with honor and with dignity. How David responds to the death of Saul is picked up in the book of 2 Samuel, and we are not going there right now, so we'll have to come back to that at another time in the future. But looking back through the book of 1 Samuel, we see David, who is selected and anointed to be king, and yet this all happens in a way where he's not even considered worthy enough by his own family to even call him in as a possible candidate for this. And we see him have this great success against Goliath and as a military leader. And then we see where he's turned on, he's betrayed, and he has to spend years on the run 
we've met Abigail. We've learned some powerful lessons there about relationships and specifically marriage as it relates to the story of Abigail and Nabal. We've also seen this incredibly loyal friend of Jonathan. And even though we didn't spend a lot of time in there, his story is one that's well worth going back and just looking at and trying to put yourself in the position of somebody who's caught literally in the middle, and yet he continues to conduct himself with integrity throughout his entire life. We see the faithfulness of David, although definitely not the perfection of David, and actually we still see some fairly high levels of immaturity in David, and yet we have hope because we see the grace and the goodness of God in David's life, and we still see God's grace present even in the life of Saul. We can learn from Saul the incredible importance of paying attention to the besetting sins, the things in our lives, fear, insecurity. Those aren't cute little puppies that just nip at our ankles. Those are like devouring Rottweilers that will take you out. We see the importance of seeking counsel and the consequences when we follow it, and the consequences when we don't follow it. One of the things, though, about this book of 1 Samuel that I really love, and it's true throughout all of Scripture, is God just shows us real human life and people. He doesn't portray Saul as nothing but this evil man, and David as nothing but this righteous saint. He portrays them both with their complexity, with their good, with their bad, with their successes, with their failures, with their beliefs in God, and when they don't trust him. And that gives me hope, and I think it probably gives you hope, because all of us have these complexities, and we grow up into this place of maturity. We don't reach a point of maturity. We're constantly on this growth path of maturity. And we can look and we can say, God, show me wherever there is any kind of fear or insecurity in my life. Show me where I might be fatigued and tired and worn out and where I'm getting ready to do the equivalent of moving off into the land of Gath when that's not going to be what you're telling me to do and I'm going to put my life and I'm going to put other people at risk as a result of that. So these are some things that we can take away from this amazing book with its very rich stories. All right, well, that's going to wrap up the book of 1 Samuel. Next week, we are going to dive into another book in the Old Testament. It's going to be a very short book, however, and we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. Ruth sometimes is one of those stories that we like to make it into kind of a fairy tale kind of story, and we miss the richness and depth of that story. So we're going to dive into that for a couple of weeks. So Join me back next week. We're going to look at the story of Ruth and a lot of other characters in that book, not just the story of Ruth. And again, if you don't already know this, when you go to the website, stephaniepresents.com, and you sign up for Highlights, the newsletter, then what you're going to get every week is you're going to get a Bible study for your family. Now, this isn't some 300-page document that you've got to spend hours pouring through every week. This is a list of simple reading assignments And I have them broken down so that if you have some children who aren't readers yet, then I use a preschool Bible so that you know, hey, if I get that Bible, I know exactly what day that I can read that short story to them. And it coincides and aligns with what you're going to be reading. And if you have readers who are in elementary school, 
There's another children's Bible that I use. So there's three different versions that I reference. And I give you three days of reading assignments. They're more than a verse, but they're not like three chapters. Our goal isn't to work through the entire Bible this year. That's not what this is about. And with those, you're going to have a synopsis for each of those assignments. And you're going to have some discussion questions. So you can talk about that with your family. Or you know what, if you have a friend and, or a group of friends and you, you want to join in and do this together and then have some discussion questions to facilitate and prompt some great discussion, that's another way that you can use this. So again, if you haven't done that, sign up for highlights at stephanieprisons.com. Also remember to check out speaking engagements over there um, while, while you're at the website. All right, my friend, I pray that you have enjoyed and grown and learned from this study of the book of 1 Samuel. And remember this, my friend, you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.